This is Sam. This is Paul. This is Jason. And this is Southpaw. So today on the podcast, we have MMA coach, striking coach, doctor of physical therapy, strength and conditioning coach, probably a whole bunch of other certifications after that, the one-man MMA staff, Jason Park. Hi, Jason. Hey, how's it going? Actually, are there other stuff that you're uh, specialized in, like maybe within some of these categories? Um, yeah. So, I mean, as a physical therapist... uh. You know, I went through my sports residency as well. So I had a lot of specialties in strength and conditioning for the rehab process, as well as uh, return to sport for a lot of injuries. Um, one of my main specialties is ACL return to sport. So seeing people after they tear the ACL, even before they go to surgery, doing their prehab, um, the immediate post-operative rehab, and then all the way to the return to sport phase. And um, that's something that I look as a really important part of physical therapy that was missing when I got into the field. Actually, that's what motivated me to get into the field because I, to be honest, did not like physical therapy when I was an athlete myself. I felt it was um, a lot of deep tissue work, manual therapy, some corrective movements and corrective exercises, but there was nothing that was integrated together to bridge the gap to what I had to do as an athlete. And so the ACL return to sport was one of those things that I really focused on in my training as a physical therapist, both in my graduate studies and in my residency. And you also said a term that a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with, prehab. Prehab is shorthand for prehabilitation, which is really just like uh, just like rehabilitation is, short, uh, is shortened to rehab. Prehab is just pre-rehabilitation um prior to probably about five six years ago that term was primarily used for if you're going to go into surgery you're going to do some pre-rehabilitation to prepare for that surgery so for instance um for your shoulder if you're having rotator cuff surgery you're going to strengthen up the rotator cuff muscles that are intact your back muscles and your trapezius, your rhomboids, so that they're better prepared for that surgery, so that they're going to have better outcomes right after. Um, for the ACL, it's definitely making sure you have your range of motion, your strength in your quadriceps, your hamstrings, your glutes, so that you're better prepared and you're going to recover faster from that surgery. That term has kind of changed in the past few years to also include the idea of doing the corrective exercise that you'd normally do in rehab, but before the injury actually occurred. So it's kind of a mixed term now. So maybe you're a weightlifter or you do some kind of thing that's really intensive on the shoulders and you don't have a shoulder injury, but because you know your sport is so demanding of the shoulders, then prehab would be something where you're doing certain rehabilitative exercises ahead of time to make sure it doesn't get injured. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, for me, my personal journey 
that was my vision of how I wanted to treat the human body. So even though I have these three different fields, you know, being an MMA coach and a striking coach, um, being a strength and conditioning coach and being a doctor of physical therapy, people say, how are you focusing on all these three different fields? But to me, it's my journey was how to improve the human body and the human movement so that it's never impaired. The human condition is as strong and as resilient as possible. So you're kind of seeing my practice. You know, I, I developed it in three different avenues. And now I'm starting to consolidate together into one total program where I'm seeing people across the spectrum. So instead of thinking of things sports specific or activity specific, you just think of it as movement as movement. Movement as movement. Yeah. And it's like an umbrella, not only a term for you, but a way you approach working with people. Exactly. And in some ways, it's, it's hard to brand myself now because I almost have to explain it by the parts of the product and the actual product all put together. So that's what I'm trying to come up now is how to describe that the sum of the products um, because it's, it's more than just this plus this plus that. It is this whole system where, you know, because when you look at most people, how they view the human body, it's like, oh, if I want to work on flexibility and stretching or I want to work on strength training or I want to work on power or I want to work on corrective exercises uh, or I want to work in their sport. And what happens is I think athletes and humans as a whole get confused because you hear, you know, one of the things I truly believe is that we're the best proponent for ourselves. So our perspective is going to be skewed to our bias of what we do. And so we look at what we do as the solution. And it is in part the solution, but, you know, someone who looks to flexibility is going to advocate flexibility as the solution. Someone who looks at strength training is going to say strength training is a solution. Nutrition, nutrition is a solution. When it really is all these things put together and what usually happens is there's not someone there at the top overlooking and saying, are all these pieces working together in this human being? Like an air traffic controller, you got all these moving parts. Yeah. It sounds like you're also saying you can't think of it just as the sum of its parts. It's not all these things and that's it. It goes beyond that because when all of it is combined, it becomes also more than the sum of its parts. Yes, exactly, exactly. So you mentioned prehabilitation. How long does that usually take or is it a lifelong process? Well, I mean, it's an ever-changing flow, right? So I look at what we do as a human as skill building. That's the best way for me to kind of look at it. And if you want to think about like... um like a video game, it's like leveling up your characters. It's not always going to be the same exercises, the same challenges. But what you would want to do is look at over the course of this year or the next five years and say, what do I want to get better at? And, and find ways to bridge all those gaps and transitions. So my job is not just to give the same things and kind of give this strict prescription. It's really to look at what their goals are. So even though it's not sports specific as a human, once it gets to that human's um, evolution through their life, then it gets very sports specific and very life specific. Um, and, and to get to this point, 
you know, I did strength training, I did rehabilitation for all types of athletes and all types of people. So even though I went through a sports residency and I always focused on going into professional sports as a physical therapist, athletes were probably about 35 to 40% of my workload. And in that time, I said, I want to see every type of athlete. I want to see the volleyball players. I want to see the soccer players. I want to see baseball players, tennis players, swimmers, because they're all going to have different problems. And the research is not developed enough to just say, oh, I will learn everything about my athletes from just the research. So I went out and said, what is the research best for shoulder stability? And went and trained those athletes. And I translated it to other types of athletes. And same thing with lower extremity strength. Um, and same thing with seeing people at all ages, all experiences. To see people who are at their oldest, you learn how to really be efficient in analyzing them, treating them, and prescribing exercises and a new way of life for them. So sounds like initially you were thinking of just being a physical therapist for athletes. Well, that's always been my my vision is I wanted to work in some type of sports medicine and uh, sports performance role for professional athletes. And, the you know, part of that is it's it's not just it's not really the glamour of it. I mean, that's always fun, but it's more of the, the difficulty of the problems. I love the challenge of seeing that, you know, with professional athletes, you have to see them at any point to develop through their full career. So that could be when they get drafted at age 17, 18, until they retire. Hypothetically, we would want around 36 to 40. That's a long career. And they're going to constantly change, right? As you age, you're not going to be as explosive. So how do you keep that explosiveness? You're not going to have as much, or you're going to get more wear and tear. So you can't drive the body the same way to get those results. And, and that's the thing that's really interesting to me. So even though I, I have this focus on professional athletes, I still love seeing athletes at all levels. But it's always with the intent of already developing athletes for something big. Um, and that that could be, you know, something recreational like triathletes. But I just I have this love for seeing people through the years. And so when people are just a couple years and done in high school or just want to play college, it's it's just a little too short lived for me for the level of investment I want to put into that athlete. How did you go from that? to becoming an MMA coach? Because most notably, you're known as uh, Anderson Silva's coach. And that's something pretty amazing because I came into working with him as a Muay Thai coach. And that's pretty amazing because he's one of the athletes I watched when I started Muay Thai. He inspired me through training um, and I watched his career all the way through from Shudo to Pride to Cage Rage to the UFC. And it was pretty influential um, for the choices that I made in my life. Even when I went to Thailand, one of the big goals I had was to learn how to clinch. And I looked for clinch-specific gyms, big in part because of how he fought Rich Franklin. So he's been a pretty big influence in my life, um, in my fight career. So it's, it's pretty cool to be able to work in that capacity 
as he's um, finishing his career. And being 32 and he's 44, it's an extreme honor to work with him with an athlete that age should have been a barrier. So how did you transition from fighting Muay Thai into the coaching? So you'll see like how all three of these fields kind of um, merge at a certain point. So let's see. So I started fighting or started training Muay Thai and boxing when I was 16. Uh, I started at Boxing Works when it was in the Hermosa Beach location. At that time, Evan Esquera and Mark Beecher were the two top fighters at that gym. Mark Beecher is pretty famous for being in Vegas, training Forrest Griffin, training a lot of the fighters in Vegas, and then traveling around and training Matt Brown, Kat Zingano. Um, he's a phenomenal coach and one of those people who I look up to quite a bit when I was a young coach because I saw that it was possible to do this basically, you know, train fighters at a high level because he came from the same gym as I did. Um, and then, you know, I moved to Philadelphia for college. I went to Haverford College out there, a small liberal arts school. Um, and then I went back to Muay Thai boxing at my time at Haverford because it was my release. Because Haverford was a very um, small school. You know, a lot of kids coming from boarding schools. And so me coming from a big public school in in Los Angeles, it was a big culture shock. And it was a very studious school. So this was my escape. And I would travel about three hours by different trains and subways to get to the gym in South Philly. Um, it was Cool Hearts Muay Thai at Dadis uh, MMA. And, you know, I spent four years training there, started doing smokers, and then moved to Thailand afterward for a year and trained and fought out there and then eventually came back to Boxing Works. You know, during that time, I after college, it was about three years where I was training, competing, and then I was applying to medical schools when, you know, always with the intention of sports medicine and... I found that none of the fields or specialties in medicine that were about sports really kind of gravitated to me. I didn't want to do surgery. So ortho orthopedic surgery was not the option I wanted. You know, pain management or pain medicine and rehabilitation, PMR, um, as well as family medicine that have that sports centric focus. A lot of it is referral or prescribing medications. And that wasn't something that was so interested to, interesting to me. And so I looked at physical therapy and you know that was never something that I had as a thought in my mind as a career path. I always thought MD was a choice. And I saw that they were crafting movement, working around people. And so I switched over and applied to just actually one graduate program at first, which was USC, University of Southern California because I knew that they would put uh, a good faculty around me. And they were the number one rated program at that time. So when I had gotten into my graduate program there, in my I was considering continuing fighting uh, beyond my 18 amateur fights at that time. I was training at Boxing Works and also at the Yard with Joe Schilling and Mark Comoro. And, you know, in that first month of graduate school, I tore my retina after a fight. And I had surgery for it. 
went back to try to train to fight with Joe and, you know, had another fight and then tore it again. And so after three surgeries, I said like, you know, and the last surgery was pretty rough. I said like, I don't think I can, you know, I don't think there's a good chance for it for me to continue fighting. Did you say retina? Like eyeball? Yeah. So that was my, my end sentence. <laughs> um, and so like, you know, that takes a, cu- a little hit out of you. Um, trying to make that transition after, you know, having this identity as a fighter. And then, you know, my amateur fighter, Jake Poss, you know, called me and said, I'm, I'm making my pro debut um, and I need help from my coaches. Do you mind coming back to helping me? And so he kind of pulled me back. And so I started coaching him and it just kind of snowballed from there. So, so all of it happened as I was going through my transition into being a physical therapist. That's why it's so tied together. Yeah, okay. So you were thinking about being a physical therapist, working with athletes, which that wasn't even what you were thinking about in undergrad. You were focused more as a fighter. And then I'm just trying to put all these disparate ideas together. (laughs) And then even as a fighter, you were working more uh, with Muay Thai specifically, right? Yes. And then from wanting to work with athletes as a doctor of physical therapy, how did you transition to then MMA coaching? Because there's some people who only work with Muay Thai people. Well, and I do work a lot with Muay Thai people, but there is, I think it it comes from what I watched when I was growing up in the sport. So I got into Muay Thai in 2003. So, and I had certain things you know before i did taekwondo and hapkido and judo also you came from the traditional martial yeah arts traditional first. martial arts taekwondo being the main one you know, I'm, a, I'm a second degree black belt in taekwondo did that already give you a lot of leg dexterity for muay thai yeah leg dexterity but you know to be honest it's a hard transition from taekwondo kicks to muay thai kicks i would say it took two years to really transition in some ways Taekwondo, even though I did that for like eight years and have this long history from childhood with it, it's more foreign to me than Muay Thai. Muay Thai is definitely my truest love. And I would say that Muay Thai and boxing is my thesis for how I approach striking. And then I I take from different traditional martial arts and other martial arts to integrate in. But I, I think that boxing and Muay Thai definitely have the best thesis to how to approach striking in full combat. So at that time, at 2003... You know, the UFC has been out for a while. K1 was big and um, Pride was coming around pretty strongly, right? I think Pride started around 99, 2000, right? So I was watching that, you know, when I was making my transition as a martial artist and, and Pride. I mean, if people haven't watched Pride and only watched UFC, they've got to watch Pride. Like That is <laughs> the best, craziest era. And it's a pretty strong influence on me because I think when I first watched Muay Thai, it was actually kind of boring and and hard to watch. And that's because in the 90s, Muay Thai, like, yeah, there's a lot, lot of like back and forth, but it was confusing to see what the results were. Like, how did people win? You know, because there's a lot of nuances in Muay Thai. So... At first, I didn't like watching Muay Thai, and I started watching K1, the heavyweight era, and Pride. And when I saw Ernesto Hust, and I saw Shootabox, like Vanderlei Silva, uh, Shogun, Anderson Silva, I was like, 
that is something different. How they use the knees, how they use their boxing, how they set up their kicks. Like, and I mean, back then, and probably like the soccer kicks, the knees when you sprawl, like that's all stuff that still stay pretty strong in my head. During that era, UFC was mostly dominated by wrestlers and you watched Pride because there were so many good strikers over Exactly, in exactly. So at that time, I didn't really like watching the UFC. Uh, I only really got into the UFC really because of Anderson Silva and George St. Pierre. So that's when I started shifting was, you know, Pride was ending. Uh, K1 Max was kind of declining a little bit. K1 Max was a pretty huge influence on me, you know, seeing Masato and, and Kraus fighting. And then seeing Bulkal come out. And, and I would say that's pretty much a big transition back to how I started understanding how Muay Thai can work in all avenues. And I started watching Muay Thai, like strictly Muay Thai. But, you know, I had all these influence from K1, from Pride, prior to really falling back in love with like traditional true Muay Thai. And so for me, I think it was always a spectrum. It never was like, oh, I have to train one or the other. I thought Muay Thai is the coolest. Boxing is the coolest. I want to see those in all platforms. And that's how I look at it now. I, I tell people, you know, when they fight about what platforms are out there, right? They're like, oh, I love Muay Thai, traditional Muay Thai. I hate kickboxing because there's no clinch or elbows. Or they say, I love Muay Thai, but I hate MMA because they're not good at striking compared to Muay Thai. I go, you know... What do you love more? Do you love Muay Thai as a martial art or do you love Muay Thai as a sport? Because I love Muay Thai as a sport. Like, don't get me wrong. I could watch that all day long, but I care more about Muay Thai as a martial art. I want to see it win that thesis of how to fight, win in all platforms. And so that's why I think MMA was always so interesting to me because it is an inherently different game. The gloves are smaller. You have to worry about takedowns. But I still feel that Muay Thai is not really expressed to the true extent that it could be, even compared to the Pride days, but just what it could be in the UFC. They're so good at wrestling. They're so good at jiu-jitsu. Boxing is getting better. But yes, they're kicking. Yes, they're low kicking. They're kneeing. But it's not that same fluidity that I know from training in Thailand, training with the Dutch fighters like you know, when you see those fighters like fight, like it's a whole different level. And and the barrier was just those top athletes were not going into the into the cage. Um, I love one FC or one fighting championship because of they're bridging that gap, you know, using that caged Muay Thai um platform that John Wayne Parr first started and now one FC is really taking on. I think it's really cool because you see top level Muay Thai fighters. Now they don't have to worry about the ground game, but they still are playing around with the differences now that you have smaller gloves, you have to cage, and they're doing amazing things. You're seeing all these knockouts and people are like, that's different from what I'm seeing in the UFC. And I think that's going to be the next huge jump is 1FC is going to push all these, this striking talent back into the MMA cage. It's going to take it to another level. So your evolution into MMA kind of what you alluded to earlier and what interests you is bigger puzzles, bigger problems. Yes. And for your love of Muay Thai, you were like, MMA is a bigger puzzle. How do we apply these concepts of fighting 
to MMA and how do we make a successful in MMA? Yeah. And I think it's also like, because I still love coaching Muay Thai fighters. You know, some of my fighters still fight in Muay Thai kickboxing rules. Um, that's why 1FC is pretty exciting because a fighter who goes there can do all of them if they are, if they, their skill set really works. So you're not only training MMA, even though that's what you're known for now because of Anderson Silva and some of these uh, MMA teams, you're not just strictly only doing MMA fighters. You also do traditional Muay Thai or kickboxing. I do traditional Muay Thai and kickboxing. And, you know, I think if you look at the top strikers in the world, um, besides the ones coming out of Thailand, they are these hybrids that can play in all these different uh, formats. You know... When you go to IFMA, um, and that's one of the roles I do play is the medical team for the USMF, which is the United States Muay Thai Federation, um, which is the governing body that looks to create the USA Muay Thai team to send out to the IFMA World Games. Um, you, you see all the different teams from all the different countries. You know, it's 83 different countries competing with their best athletes at Muay Thai. It's pretty gangster. Like you, like the top fighters are coming out to represent their country, and they're fighting with nationalism. It always amps everything up. And when you see the top fighters, you'll see that they have the fluidity to change between the different rule types. You know, because they grew up fighting boxing, kickboxing. Some people sandshell, you know, and sanda and and muayte. They play at all these different rules and fight all the time. And so that when they come out, they can change. Isn't that also where Joanna Joancic and Valentina Shevchenko came from? Yes. And they fought in the IFMA multiple times. There were multiple gold medalists there. And, and you can see that pedigree come out. And I think that's, that's going to be the future. You know, IFMA is definitely going to be, if you want to be a striker, um, it's one of the best pedigrees that you can develop. And because those fighters from Belarus, Kazakhstan, the Netherlands, like, they can play so many different styles. You know, they, they do kickboxing, like kind of tempos, and then more Muay Thai. They use clinch, the elbow, and they're they're changing. And it's it's hard to read, right? It just gives them more options. Now, when you say styles, I think a lot of people who think of uh, combat sports and martial arts and fighting in a more rudimentary style, more of a rudimentary way, I should say, um, they think of it more like style is like striker versus grappler or karate versus kickboxing, let's say. But you're talking about kickboxing, but styles as in more of uh, their concepts that they're going into. Like in boxing, there's all these different styles, but it's all boxing, right? You could have an in-fighter versus a counter-striker who likes to stay on the outside. So within kickboxing, then you're saying like even though it's punching and kicking and kneeing, a Muay Thai person might have a different theory of fighting versus somebody who came from a different type of kickboxing, even though they're going to use the same punches, kicks, and knees. Is there, the styles are based around their theory of fighting. And even in boxing, you know, you can see different styles of boxing, right, from different regions. Like, just to put two big groups, you know, there's that American style that we typically see in the States where, you know, they have wider base, you know, they use a lot of head movement, shoulder rolls, um, really narrow line of a stance. And then you can see how the Cubans and the Russians fight. A lot more footwork, a little bit more upright. Um, looks a little bit more mechanical, but 
it's still effective. We see Triple G out right now. You know, Postal is doing amazing. And in, in, in the Philippines has a whole different style. Um, Japan's making its way back, and they have their own, like, Japan is one of those, like, regions where they have such a crisp level of boxing. But because, just like the Filipinos, like, they're, they're a little smaller, you just don't see it on the big stage. But, man, I love the way they fight. So even in boxing where it's just two hands, right even less variables you see a lot of this variability um and i think it's the same in in muay thai and what's going to happen i think is it's all going to melt together where it's harder and harder to tell the difference before it's like there's dutch style and there's muay thai from thailand but now you're seeing like everyone's training you have to train in both and one fc i mean you you can literally see like some of the fighters have to fight Muay Thai in the next fight, kickboxing rules, and then Muay Thai. So you have to be able to adjust. It's interesting when you mention Dutch style because even among that, there's variations. So when you look at someone like Melvin Manhoff, who has that Rotterdam, every strike is a hard strike. Sure. And then you have a Remy Bonjowski, who's more Amsterdam, and he's like very technical. Yeah. He has that long rangey style. So even when people say, oh, he's a Dutch striker, oh, he's from Holland. So they yeah. almost all fight the same. Like that's not even true within the same place. Yeah. You travel 10 miles one way and they have a totally different philosophy in the way they strike. And when you brought up, even with boxing, you look at someone like a Miguel Cotto yes. when he fights a Margarito. Or when they fight a Ricky Hatton against a Mayweather. It's the same thing, same sport, but it's completely different. So you can't just say he's a good boxer. It's like that's not as well suited for MMA because he's going to get clipped. The way they hold the guard isn't as beneficial to them in this sport. Whereas other boxers who might not be as successful in the ring find way more success in the cage. Yeah. I think I think that's... Um how I like to analyze things is to be open-minded. So I don't like to put strong labels on things. And that's allowed me to really explore how different people express their art and really taking like, it's not like, Oh, like, you know how most people will take on styles. Like, you know, I'm Dutch. I don't like traditional Muay Thai or I like the Cuban style or I'm Mexican style. I don't like how the Philippines conducts boxing, but what I like doing is going, what is everyone doing? And I say a lot to my mentees is that I go, my favorite thing in life is to look at people who will never agree with each other and then hearing for what they all say is the same or they say the same concept. So one example of that is like the triangle theory, right? Like you see that in Filipino Eskrima, Filipino martial arts, like they have the triangle theory, but like, you know, whether it's stepping on a V, stepping on a 45 degree angle, like I've seen this in karate, in boxing, in Muay Thai, in different forms of boxing, different forms of kickboxing. I go, well, if they're all agree, if they all agree on this concept in some way, shape or form, but they wouldn't agree about how to conduct themselves as a martial art for everything else, it must be a pretty true human concept. And that's why I like talking to a lot of different people is, I listen for, oh, I've heard that before. I've heard it from that person. I heard it again. And, and that's the most interesting thing for me. Just as combat sports evolves, do you think also now then coaching is evolving to what I would say 3.0, where it's the modern coaches who are getting popular now or coming up now, like your age, 
uh, or some people even a little bit above you or behind you are more nuanced in this approach they're thinking about in this like meta 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 game for sure and i think you know without a doubt internet is the biggest gift because you can stay in contact with people you can connect with people like so quickly and you can watch what people are doing because in the race to get more followers to get more engagement to create business on the pr side everyone's showing everything when have you ever had that in martial arts before everyone's holding everything back now you can see the top athletes showing like their most complex moves and describing it and so you know i'm researching constantly i know the other top coaches are always researching um like one little thing that i do for all three of my fields like i i have different people i follow um for martial arts for strength and conditioning and for physical therapy and i every morning i like look for 30 interesting things that i might agree with or disagree with and at night before i go to sleep i look at 30 things that i agree with or disagree with before i go to sleep and that's obsessive a little bit but it's also from my passion like i'm interested in this stuff and um by doing so you just get a little tasting menu every day and that's something that you would never have without the internet um it's pretty cool what makes you a little different from other mma and striking coaches is that because you do have the strength and conditioning and the physical therapy aspect i would say both of those combined basically makes you a biomechanist yes you can really look at the biomechanics of something while from the strength side looking at maximum strength output and then also considering injury prevention in the technique. So have you changed methods or techniques from the traditional classical way? Because you're like, this is better for your biomechanics or this is better so you don't hurt yourself down the line. Um, not really. I think what the biomechanics has allowed me to do is to look at what people are doing in their sport and I remember doing this even when I lived in Thailand, when I, when I was, you know, finishing a fight and I was resting for that week, I was still just watching people train and sometimes going to different gyms and going, how did they train here? And what do they look like when they're training? Um, and I think even back then I was saying, wow, all the people who have hard kicks turn their shoulders and the hips the same way. And what it allowed me to do was identify things that are more important to follow to create better output or better technique and to know what things I can ignore for power output. So one example is when people kick, they always say, oh, people will argue, where do you put your hands? Do you put it at face height to block their punch? Do you put it down by your waist and throw it back? You know, where you put your hands is not important to how you put power output. It might change based on where you want your hands to, you know, block the vision of your opponent, you know, where you want it to be a passive guard or an active guard. But in terms of how it's hitting, it's not as important as long as you're not fully out of position. But what is important is that your hips and your shoulders move in a very defined sequence. So when they talk about the hands, I go, Sure, the hands can be in different positions, but if your shoulder's not turning so it's aligned at the right point of the point of impact, it doesn't matter. So that's where I think the biomechanics really helped me is to kind of 
cut out the noise from the unimportant things. And to also look at it and say, like, these are still important for other things. But if we're talking about power generation and the technique of the kick for power generation, it's not as important. That's kind of like uh, what I noticed with somebody like Donald Cerrone. I don't know if you've ever noticed his kick, but he's the only one I've seen in the UFC ever where whenever he throws a kick, he doesn't do anything with his hands. He keeps them by his chin yeah. when he kicks and he just kind of flares his elbows so his shoulder can turn. And it just looks like a very ugly kick. And just from what you've learned, like I've done Muay Thai for a long time too. It's like, how does he generate? It shouldn't look like it should land hard from where his arms are, but he still kicks hard. Yeah. Because so I mean, to your point. I mean, you know, the biggest power generation of a kick, if you want to look at the biomechanics of a kick, is the kicking leg is the least important power generator of the kick. And that's, I think, the biggest problem that most people do when they throw a kick is they try to yank that kicking leg faster at the target. But, I mean, you're yanking from what? Like, you're pulling from, like, your back, your hip. Like, and that's why a lot of people who have, like, back pain on their left side, it's because they're, like, trying to hip hike their way to the kick. The real power of the kick comes from where are you putting your pivot point? So that step out. And then how much force are you generating from the leg that's connected to the ground? How well is it pivoting to transfer that force that you created by triple extending? So when you land, you take that step and you push through your hip muscle, your glutes, your quads, straight down your knee, go up onto your tiptoes. That's all the power that you've generated. And then the pivot of turning on the ball of your foot, turning your hips, turning your shoulders, that's the transfer of that power, like a baseball swing. And then, you know, the kick lands. So basically, like what they call ground reaction force, right? Because we live in gravity, all of our power is going to come from the friction that we create off of the ground. It's like a mistake runners make. They think it's more important to like lift their leg up, but that leg, your lead leg, isn't even touching the ground. It's the leg that is on the ground that's going to push you, propel you forward. Sure. And you see that in plyometrics all the time, right? People do box jumps. They go, well, you're not really training your triple extension and your vertical if you have to tuck your knees so far up to get on top of the box. The more impressive thing is if you could jump and your legs are completely straight and you get to that same height. They're just doing a crunch in midair. Yeah. <laughs> like That's amazing. If that was what your sport demanded, but if you're looking for power generation against the ground, it's not doing its job. So let me ask you this. It's kind of an inside baseball question about kicking. So if you came from the traditional martial arts, whether it's Taekwondo or, or uh, karate or even Kung Fu, actually all the traditional arts, I think what they have in common, which is different from, I think, something like Muay Thai, is we were always taught that the best way to create the most amount of power in a kick is you don't step, you just pivot that foot, right? Like you kind of lift your heel and just like, you just spin on it, basically. Whereas Muay Thai, you step out, but you still pivot, but you step out and you kick. I guess my question for you is, which actually creates more power? Stepping out and kicking or just pivoting in place? I think it really depends on what you're looking to do. And, and I look at both sports as really great ways to express striking. You know, traditional martial arts like karate, um, taekwondo, Kyokushin karate, Shotokan karate, they all chamber their kicks. And what I mean by chamber is they bring their knee up. They might move their hips or they might just extend the knee. and But that's their striking point. Whereas Muay Thai, it's like a full body motion. 
And you hear that even from like guys like from like traditional Shodan karate, I've heard this a lot from Chinzo and Lyoto. It's like you shouldn't see the kick come out. That's what they believe in um, all these karate styles. And, you know, Taekwondo, Kyokushin, they all came from Shotokan. They all have their influence from that, you know, base of karate. You really shouldn't show that you're kicking, right? So if you're in your back stance, you just bring your knee up. But if you look at the shoulders, nothing's moving. Yeah. And then you extend out. Yeah. Um, and even like the point of impact is different, right? You know, Moita, you hit with the shin. Karate, like if you're actually hitting someone, usually it's with the ball of the foot. We train in Taekwondo with the instep, but when we hit the board, to break the board, it was always with the ball of the foot because if you hit with your instep, it's not a good day. So I think they're just different techniques and different ways of delivery. I, I almost look at it as like, it's a different tool. It's a different weapon. It's a different gun. Like, you know, they just have different outputs. You can't say, well, is the baseball swing better or a golf swing better? It's like they're just different goals, different targets. Um, so I think it's the same with boxing and, and uh, Muay Thai and, and karate. You know, when you look at reverse punches versus a, a long cross, both are really effective. It's just different ways of utilizing it. I think why you see Muay Thai... There's two reasons why you see Muay Thai and boxing dominate over most martial arts is one, those techniques have evolved for the rule set it's it's created for. Taekwondo and, and Shotokan Karate, they're martial arts that were full martial arts that have transitioned into being point competitions. So all the techniques have changed for speed and that kind of anticipation how to impact on for that sport. And for that rule set, you know, Muay Thai has trained and boxing has trained for that Queensberry rule set for a long time. You know, boxing has been late 1800s and Muay Thai, I think they adopted in 1910 or 1920. So they've been fighting with gloves and these minute rounds, three minute rounds, one minute rest and for damage for a long time. And I think part of the evolution also is that because they have become sports and they have become professional sports with money involved, that the training intensity has has increased. And with anything that ha- involves money and competition, evolution of training techniques have, have changed so much faster. Um, whereas if you're a traditional martial arts, you're still stuck in the my way versus your way. I'm going to hold my stuff secret. I can't see yours and we're going to compete once. Whereas when it becomes professional, everyone's watching you and everyone's looking for ways to beat you and, and seeing, oh, like they're training their kicks that way. Maybe we should do that too. And there's that constant change and evolution. So I think that's the main reason why you see boxing and Muay Thai have gotten to that thesis so much faster. It's not that Taekwondo and cry techniques don't work. You see them work all the time in kickboxing. You see them work in MMA. It's just that they have evolved for that rule set of full contact so much better. I think uh, there's a something you just said briefly, I think needs to be highlighted, which is the intent or the goal. Muay Thai boxing has evolved where what matters the most is damage. Damage. And the other side, if what matters the most is points, 
even though damage is a plus, in a point game, jabs are king. Yeah. And you see it even like Kyokushin, right? Kyokushin is such a deadly martial art. Like, if you were to tell me to go into a Kyokushin competition, I'd be like, oh, I don't really want to because those guys get hurt. Like, if you ever watch it, it's like watching two guys stuck in a telephone booth for two minutes, just hitting nonstop and taking everything. But they're not allowed to punch to the face. And that seems like such a small difference. But I know from all the different karate guys I've worked with, like, they weren't used to that. And so I would just get them to box and get used to boxing, get used to how to defend the face. Because if you don't have that, you can't kick. So, like, you know, that's probably been my 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 benefit as a young coach is just going, not saying, oh, this is karate, this is taekwondo, this is judo, this is jiu-jitsu. Like, looking at them and going, what do they bring to the table that's really good? Because I'm not going to take away from someone who has world champion level skills at a sport and say, that's all trash. We're going to just do Muay Thai. You don't start them from scratch. You no. take what you got and then build from there. If they're a good karate fighter, like Adele Altamimi is an amazing Kyokushin fighter. You know, he can kick from everywhere so fast. And the beats are different. The rhythms are different. I'm not going to take that away. But I'm going to have to explain to him how to use that in the context of the MMA ring. And, and some of that stuff is like, you got to learn how to throw at a Muay Thai rhythm or pace to lull your opponent into thinking, oh, I can deal with this. I've seen this before. Because if you throw that snap kick right away, they're going to go, I'm out. I'm not going to even try that. I'm going to avoid that at all costs. So if you really want that to work, you got to set it up. And and that's something you see in boxing and Muay Thai that they don't know how to do in other martial arts for that rule set. Yeah. It sounds very much like a young Andy Hug when he first got into K1 from Kyokushin Karate, yeah, he had a hard time defending within that boxing range. But yeah. once he added it, how are you going to stop the hug tornado? For sure. I mean, look at like the K1 heavyweights. It's such an interesting era. Because yeah, there were some Muay Thai fighters, but a lot of them were Kyokushin fighters that learned how to box. Like the Andy Hugs, the Francisco Filios, Sam Greco. Like those are Kyokushin fighters that started to learn how to box. And learn how what Muay Thai fighters did, and they just adjusted. But the early K1 heavyweight era, like besides like Ray Sefo and Ernesto Hoos, like a lot of those guys have Kyokushin uh, backgrounds. Going back to technique and considerations as a biomechanist, another thing I've always wondered about is this idea of like when you're in a you know fighting guard like a boxing guard or a muay thai guard you should just shrug your shoulders or sometimes they even tell you to corkscrew your punch where you're shrugging your shoulders as you punch but i always felt like when i did that just hurt my shoulders after a while and i just like the next day my neck hurts i'm like this can't be good for my body so i think again this is where you start having to really look at the athlete as a whole so this is what i do is like whether i'm a I, so when I usually encounter an athlete, I have a primary role that I pick from myself. Like, right? Like, if I'm consulting, it's different. But if I, if I'm a Muay Thai coach, that's my primary role. Someone else is usually doing the strength and conditioning, or you know, re, uh, recovery work. That's my ideal. Like, I might step into that role, especially when we travel. But you know, primarily, like, I I, I want to have a primary role. Um, in something and same thing if I'm a strength and conditioning coach 
yes, I will talk to them. I'll talk with their coach and give my suggestions, but I'm not their Muay Thai coach because I feel that blurs the lines. And then that also creates where with the client, they're hearing my voice too many times. And my my effectiveness of of transferring my knowledge base is going to be lessened across the board. So whatever the point of need for me, I want to stay in that lane usually. Um, sometimes circumstances will change and like I'll have to step into those other roles. But ideally, you have separate people for those those different positions. So you don't want to overstep your bounds. Yeah, I, I think the benefit of my role is like I have strong empathy for what the other people are trying to do. I know how to ask questions. I know how to give feedback. And but it's not like I want to do everything. I want to do everything for myself as a as my skill set, but not for each athlete. I want to do be there everything because that's that's a lot of work. That's like nonstop. There's a reason why we have teams. Going back to your question about punching positions, you you know, as, as a coach, my experience and my skill sets from being a strength and conditioning coach and being a physical therapist is always there. So I'm always watching and analyzing them. And so I go, well, is it the technique that's the problem? Is it the ability for the body to coordinate everything to create that technique? Um or is their body not resilient enough to handle that technique? That's how I always have to look at it. And I say, well, are they shrugging their shoulders because that's what they think they're supposed to do? Or is it because they don't know how to coordinate that scapula and so the body pops that out? Or is it because they don't have enough strength output from the muscles that should do the work and so other things have to assist? And, and I think that's an important uh, point to take into account because if you're just a striking coach, you're going to think technique, technique is a problem. They're just not throwing hard enough, throw harder. If you're a strength and conditioning coach, you think they're not strong enough. They don't look at the technique or even ask the fighter, well, do you know what you're supposed to do? And then if you're like uh, – like a pure, like what a traditional physical therapist used to be, um, they'll be like, oh, well, you're overusing those muscles. Let's get them to calm down. And so I think, I like I'm not the only physical therapist, I think, that is working um, in different avenues. There's a lot of hybrids now where they work in strength and conditioning, some working in actual techniques of different sports. Um, I'm pretty excited to see more peers doing that in uh, the physical therapy world uh, because I think we bring a strong lens that's missing, which is we look at the human body as a, a whole. We know the anatomy. We know the biomechanics. We look at the skeleton and the muscles doing things like kind of like an X-ray or MRI machine in real time. Um, it's It's allowed us to really create really cool connections like for instance, sometimes they shrug their shoulder because it's a toe, big toe problem, right? Which is so crazy to think about. But if their back toe is not able to get into the position of that plantar flexed and uh, big toe extended position to stay on the ball of their foot, to push power off their back leg, of course, they're going to have to push harder from their shoulder. 
So like, it's really got to be a good understanding of the whole body as a whole. You know what's funny? And you were talking about Japanese boxing earlier. Uh, I, I've been reading a Japanese comic book, a manga about boxing. And <laughs> cool. they had like a whole like three issues just about the big toe. Really? Like your punches are too weak because your big toe is too weak. And they just did all this big toe training. And it was exactly to your point. But just watching striking in Japan, they're just real sticklers for like all the basics. And, for all and the basics. But this is a problem that you see is I think in all sports, usually the answer has already been figured out. They know most sports knows how to to create the biggest output for their sport better than anyone else. Otherwise, they wouldn't be masters in it. The problem is the game of telephone that happens generation after generation. And sometimes you see, even within one generation, and definitely within two, the message is muddied. Because they didn't figure it out correctly. And maybe even the, the original teacher doesn't know how they developed it correctly. They're just saying all these things. They don't know which is the one that actually got that to stick. And so... I think that's the biggest problem is going through all the noise. There's millions of cues, millions of styles. Like, what is the right one for that person? And why are they not able to get to point Z from point A? Can you give an example of something that might have been muddied? I think one, one big, big picture look is if you look at how Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu people throw, it's in the martial art how to throw. It comes from Judo. But because their focus has been different things, they still practice it, but it's not to the same efficiency. And you'll see how teachers will teach it over and over, but it's definitely not like, it doesn't look anything like judo anymore. And so, and how, how old is Brazilian jiu-jitsu, really? It's not like hundreds of years old. It's, it's only been like 60, 70 years from its separation from judo, really. But it's become such a different beast so quickly. That's two generations, really. So that's where you can see such a big transition. Taekwondo too, like, you know, you know, I hear this argument all the time from people who do forms. All the techniques of fighting are in these forms. We have knees, we have elbows, we have blocks, we have grappling techniques and all the karate forms, taekwondo forms. That's true. But if you don't know what you're doing and you don't have a good context on how to train it, it's lost. It's almost like... Uh, how we look at Egyptian hieroglyphics now. Like, it's all there, <laughs> but we have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> and I think that's like, it's it's human problem. We created the solution, but because of ego and how we're approaching our own journey, we we lose the right message. You talk a lot about output and how it's interesting to see what can be done better. But... Given your background, you also know damage is inevitable. However, there are times when fighters might do things that are needlessly reckless or dangerous. What are some things that you think fighters and athletes should cut down to prevent injuries and have a better long-term career? In fighting, I think it's, it's harder because that's the performance in the test. One that's easy to say is, please try not to go into wars if you don't have to. You know, try to be a smart fighter. But while you're being a smart fighter, be really exciting. That's the best. 
<laughs> right? The John Joneses, the Anderson Silvas, like that's what made them so spectacular. Was they they definitely played it safe. They didn't take that much damage during their top reigns, but uh, and you can call that efficiency, but they definitely did some spectacular things. It's not like when you just watch Floyd Mayweather and he's being efficient and safe, but he never did anything that really uh, punished the other opponent. You know, that's why people really love Golovkin and Canelo and Pacquiao. So that's probably the one thing I would say is try to avoid wars. Like I don't, I think for me as a strategy coach, like um, I often hear fighters saying like, like I'm a soldier and my fighters laugh at me about this. Like to say like, like I'm a soldier. I'm like, I don't want you just to be a soldier. I want you to be a special forces. Like I want you to be like invisible surprise attack vanish. Not like just like everyone's dying on the battlefield. Uh, at least exciting fights, but definitely from a, a body wear and tear standpoint, a concussion and brain health standpoint, it's not good for you. It's definitely going to limit your career. From, I think the thing that can really extend a fighter's career length, though, is in its training and how you can get the most out of your training. What I see with all athletes, but especially in MMA, is there's not enough communication between all the different coaches. So MMA is such a strong example of that because you know, you're working on four martial arts probably plus strength and conditioning and then you might have nutrition and recovery as well, right? So that's looking at a boxing coach, a Muay Thai coach, a jiu-jitsu coach, a wrestling coach, a strength and conditioning coach, nutrition Maybe a physical therapist or chiropractor or ATC on the side to help with the recovery. Seven people. What are the chances? And, and maybe you have a head coach on top of that. What are the chances that you have them all talking to each other? Very little. And if they do, it's usually relying on the head coach or more likely the fighter to be the reporter between everyone. Right? You hear it all the time from every coach. What did you do yesterday? How do you feel? Relying on the athlete to report to you what they're doing is the worst thing you can do because they're subjective and they are concentrating on what they're doing. They have no idea what the overall plan is. Sometimes I don't want the athlete to know what the overall plan is because we're working on their weaknesses or developing strengths. And we just, there's different scenarios, but communication through everyone is important because when you don't have that communication, Everyone naturally assumes they need to push their athlete to the, the highest level at every practice because they only see them three or four times a week. But what that leads to is them doing two to three workouts every day that's super taxi on their body. Like we all can figure out that that's not a good recipe for success. If you drive a car redlining it the whole day, it's going to wear out and it's definitely going to be not prepared for the fight optimally. So I think that's one important thing because if you're actually watching what everyone's doing, you go, oh, for the strength and conditioning coach, are you going to push them hard, neural load, so that their body might need to recover or their nervous system needs to recover? Then maybe I need to do a lighter day. Still working on skills, but maybe not going punch as hard as you can. 
Maybe we just do higher volume, lower intensity. You know, and I think those are the things that are really important because you can still develop skills without pushing hard. But it's to know, okay, am I a high intensity person for for this athlete right now, or am I a low intensity or moderate intensity? I think another thing would be continuing to develop the strength and conditioning world, and that in my in my bias is also bringing in more of the physical therapy and uh, rehab medicine into the strength and conditioning because you see a lot of these hybrids developing in in all professional sports in the NBA and NFL, MLB, where you have physical therapists working in the strength and conditioning room. And that's by design so that you're not just getting the correctives and the health aspects when they're injured. Why wouldn't you implement that when they're healthy and start creating strength and conditioning programs where they stay resilient and get stronger? Because one of the best things about strength and conditioning is it should fulfill what you're missing from your sport. And I look at it as it should get you bigger, faster, stronger, but also it should get you to being moving back like a normal human being because our sports naturally we're pushing so hard for so long that we're going to morph into a stereotypical whatever a boxer looks like hunched shoulders protracted shoulders wide out scapulas neck hanging out jiu-jitsu people all walk like side to side lateral shift and can't rotate their head from their neck so i look at strength and conditioning one to get you stronger and more explosive, but the other side should be, how do you retrain your body to move like a normal person the rest of the day? Because what you're training in your fighting time is to stay in, if you don't have a a way to unlock yourself, you're going to stay trained in that position the whole day. And that's the biggest attrition, is not what you do in just training, but how that adds up throughout the rest of the day. When do you think strength and conditioning should be focused on primarily? Is it when, and this is from a fighter perspective, is it when they're in camp, out of camp? I think the answer is all, but that depends on what kind of strength and conditioning you're doing. So so for me, my brand of strength and conditioning, it's, it's there for all of it. If they're out of camp, we're trying to build as much muscle strength and get their body to come back to a nice optimal level so they're ready to get into camp and not have to focus on getting stronger. We can focus on getting more explosive because they already developed their max strength. They already developed their muscle hypertrophy to a level because every camp, you're losing muscle as as well as losing fat. So there's a reason why in off-season, there's a rebuilding process. And I think that's something that's so hard with year-round sports like MMA because you don't really get long periods where you know you're going to be off season. So in some ways I kind of created shorter. So there's a term in strength and conditioning and periodization called microcycles, mesocycles, and macrocycles. Um, I think it's a really important thing. Like macrocycle is how you're going to develop over the next three to four years. The Russians are really good at this because they are primarily training for Olympic games. So they look at everything like four year, eight-year development. And so if you look at the coaches that come from there, like Pavel uh, with all the kettlebells and all these, like um, the Marinovich system, they're looking at long-term development as well. Um, So that's important. But also what is important for us for the next fight, 
we have to train um, in mesocycles and microcycles. And so what what developed for me is I started creating shorter and shorter mesocycles because our mesocycles, the traditional way, it comes from powerlifting, Olympic lifting, or bodybuilding. But they don't have that much demand on their body like a fighter does or an athlete does. They don't have to do as many things. Like They work hard, don't get me wrong, but they have one to two hard sessions of just lifting. So from a nervous sta- nervous system standpoint, they're not taxing their body as much. Whereas if you look at an athlete, they have to work on agility. They have to work on skills. They have to work on strength training. They have to work on explosiveness, aerobic capacity. They have to do a lot more things. Like powerlifters don't have to work that much on aerobic capacity. They don't have to work on sprint work. It's all accessory. So their menstrual cycles can be longer. But I think for most athletes, I find my menstrual cycles are getting shorter and shorter where I, I pretty much do three-week menstrual cycle with one-week deload. So I look at it just one month at a time. And it's kind of because I also cannot predict when they have to shift. So if I go, oh, I plan for an eight-week mesa cycle. And then fight announcement comes three weeks into the mesa cycle. I'm like, dude, what am I supposed to do? Cut them early and they don't have the benefits. And now I'm like think, scrambling to figure out a new program. Or three weeks, you're, you can be pretty responsive keep adjusting their program to what they need. And so I'm constantly analyzing them and saying like, okay, what do we need to create more power output? What do we need to develop more strength? Or do we need to create more strength through hypertrophy? Do we need to create more movement awareness and balance? And and so that shorter message cycle, I think helps a lot. There's something else you've said a couple of times, neural load or nervous system, which I think regular gym enthusiasts aren't familiar with, but People who train athletes, that's a term you hear a lot. But what do you mean exactly by that? So if you look at it, there's two main components to how you can overload your nervous system. One is from the higher the intensity, the nervous system gets taxed. And so what it means by that is it's not as coordinated for a certain amount of time afterward. It needs a longer rest interval to kind of resync up. So you're not talking about a tiredness where you're out of breath. It's uh, a way to deal with the information of your body. Sure. So what we see, especially if you look at explosive training and high strength training, is that the muscles and the cardiovascular system recover way earlier than the nervous system. So if you're lifting heavy, you might be able to lift heavy from a muscle standpoint. You're not sore. They're ready to go you know, breathing's not impaired. You might be ready to go later that day or the next day, but the nervous system, how it coordinates all those things may be taxed and and won't be able to really create that same output. So that's why you sometimes see with those heavier strength days, it's not the muscles. At the beginning, you start as a beginner, you feel a lot of muscle soreness, but later on, it's because you're not able to create the same output before two or three days. So there's a lot of smart programming that you can do to work around it. So you're still training. It's not like for an athlete, they're always going to be, I'm only going to see them three times a week. It might be, I see them every day, but we're working on different things, working on soft tissue work, working on aerobic capacity on the days that they're recovering from their heavy lifting. Um, The other side of things though, that I think is really important that needs to come out more often is the hormonal side of things. So that's where we look at sympathetic drive and parasympathetic drive. Uh, 
So sympathetic drive is fight or flight. Parasympathetic is rest and digest. Both are really important for what they do, but we can easily say that in the modern day, we're in a lot of sympathetic drive just outside of our sport, right? How many texts, driving, you know, what work, the stress level grows, that feeds into that sympathetic drive. And you'll find that if people don't get out of that, hormonally and nervous system, they're going to start degrading. There's a muscle, uh, there's a hormone called, like, called cortisol that will develop from that stress response. And in the short term, cortisol is great. The sympathetic response is great. That's what allows us to fight. But when we're done with that adverse event, we want to be able to shut that off and calm back down. But, you know, our daily life, I think we don't really get the chance to really shut things off. I mean, it's getting worse now because we have phones all the time. And I'm not one to really look at technology as the worst thing ever. I look at technology as the best. I think this is the best era that we're in. But with great power comes great responsibility. We need to know how to use it and how to shut it off when we don't need to use it. That's another idea that you've said a couple of times, which is uh, going back to being a normal human again. You're talking about the fight is over. You have to be able to turn off that cortisol, come back to like normal levels. But you also said that about sports specific training where you're training for a camp and maybe your posture is developed in a certain way, but now you're not heading into a camp. You're not in camp. Maybe it's to pull back and, and exercise and train in a way to make you not walk like a weird jujitsu guy or not have your shoulders be like a boxer. So in general, would you kind of give that as an advice for enthusiasts and hobbyists and amateur MMA fighters is if you got nothing going on, no fights on the horizon, work on those exercises and those type of uh, routines that you can do to pull you back into just moving more as a functional human being and having your nervous system and your hormonal state, not in a state of alarm. For sure. On a big picture state, that is when you're, when you're not um, fighting, like that's why when they're done with fighting, sometimes they go, don't go to the gym for a week. Still work out, like still go for long walks, jog, um, but just not to the same intensity. Just for a week, separate yourself. Because mentally too, like fight camps are grueling. To get that motivation, you need to separate yourself a little bit. So you get hungry again to go back. Um, but I, I think my advice is really to do that on a daily basis. So if you're looking at just postural issues right people look at oh jujitsu is causing my neck to hurt or my back to hurt and yeah it's it's a very heavy stressful load but after you're done training have you done anything to teach your body how to not hold those same postures and then you're going to carry those postures for how many hours rest of the day 23 hours left in the day and you're stuck in these positions so I look at it as whatever we do as a human. So if you're an athlete, you're going to do your sport. Um, you have to do something to reverse that to some degree, not to the same level of time and intensity, but at least a, a, a percentage of that. Like I'm asking for like 10, 20% of a reversal back. And that's pretty much all. The body is pretty adaptable. It's not a catastrophic event. It's usually the, the addition of every day where you're not reversing it that's, that's causing the problem. 
So don't wait until you're on vacation or retired from jujitsu. Yeah. Try to do a little bit of it every day. So here's one of the hardest things I see as a, as a physical therapist, right? Is when we talk about, say, rotator cuff issues, I tell patients this. I see professional athletes getting it. And I see the oldest people who move zero also get it. And office workers in the middle who are 40 to 60, which means everyone gets this at some point. So it's like, why is it happening for all these people? And knowing how to optimize the human body so it works. When it happens to everyone, it's not because, oh, like it's just inevitable. It's it's like it's like a race car, right? Or like a car. I'll, I'll use this as an example. So if I go into my house, right? You go up onto the driveway. Imagine that you are nicking the edge of that driveway. You know how it becomes a normal curb? You nick that every time when you make a left turn into the driveway. That's going to bother the car long term, right? Now imagine you're a race car and you hit that every time fast. Is it going to happen earlier or later? It's going to happen earlier because you're just going higher intensity. But if you don't adjust the problem, it's going to happen at some point, whether you are at 40 or 50 and reaching a lot overhead or you're 70, 80 and you're trying, but you're not strong. So you just overuse that, that muscle group. It's going to happen. So my job as a physical therapist is to go, what is that thing, that pebble in the foot, in, in the shoe that's causing this problem? And how do we eliminate that problem? Um, and then you have to scale how much you have to fix that problem. It could be you're a shitty driver. You just don't know how to turn correctly. And you always <laughs> hit it. Maybe you're not perceptive that your car is hitting it. Like, you know how some people like, you'll feel it. But the other person's like, I don't know what, there's nothing, nothing happens. They don't have good sensory system of, of that insult. Or maybe the car shocks are shitty. Or um, maybe the turning radius is not good, so that's the only way they can get into the driveway. There's so many different ways to go about it. But just like with driving, you know, when we talk about like, oh, perfect posture, perfect way to squat, there's a perfect way to squat for sport because you're under a heavy load. But that doesn't mean that's how you have to squat for daily life to pick up something from the ground, right? Um, I think that's one of the biggest problems that we took over from strength training is that we go, we have to squat when we have a bar over our back a certain way. Very like, you know, hips back first, belly button tight, you know, belly button forward, leaning forward. That's the perfect way to squat. But if you're picking something off the ground, like you don't need to squat like that. Like you're fine. Just squat down. Like you're gonna find an easy medium. So that's that's the balance. Like what we do for sport, and what we do for normal life. Um, and it takes a long ways. Like there's a lot of things that we could fix in that car example before we have to say, man, you gotta really like drive, turn, back out, turn in. Like this long laborious way of getting into the driveway. You can fix all these things. You can fix the suspension. You can fix the way you drive. You can fix the steering of the car. You could, there's so many ways that you can fix the human body before you're stuck to doing something so limited. Um, 
And I think that's something that's really cool about sports. I think it's really cool about human movement. Uh, one one example, like as a as a side note, is if you look at just like knee replacements, right? The demands that they require in Asia versus America and Europe are completely different, and it's because where do people sit? And it's not just about like I I hear this all the time, like oh some people like poop through a hole on the ground some people stand up and have a toilet i hate that example because in asia a lot of people are using toilets now but there is that cultural way of like in, in korea japan you sit on the ground on a low table all the time in america you rarely do that so when you have a knee replacement knee extension and flexion are usually a limiting factor especially flexion so normal is they say it's 140 degrees of knee flexion, but really it's like near 150. If you're really going heel to butt, it's like 150, 155. And that's what most people would say is like a pretty normal knee range of motion, right? It's not just shy of that. Like you should be able to sit on your, your heels. But in America, a lot of people can't do that. But in Asia, the way you bow, the way you sit down on the ground, you have to do that. And so in a like in a lot of Western countries, after a knee replacement, like 120 is really thought of as like, that's suitable. Like you can do all your daily activities, get in the toilet, get into a chair, get into a car. That's good. Like if you look at Medicare, they say, if you hit 120, that's all we really want for sure. Anything beyond that, it's just gravy. But in Asia, 120 is super limiting. You can't get down to the ground. You can't kneel. You can't pray if that's one of the ways that you pray. You can't pay respect to elders. So they're like, this is a problem. So their demands are a lot higher. So that shows that that's just a pure how you're living your life issue. It's not a human condition issue of what your body's limitations are. So much of then what you want to demand from your body is also a question of lifestyle. What kind of life do you want to live? Yeah, and I say this to all athletes. Part of the way reason why strength and conditioning and physical therapy is so important to them is not just how are they feeling today. That's great. But it's how they're able to sustain their lifestyle long term. You know, like when we're young, everything is easy. But I even have people who are 22, 23, 25. We, our bodies will all fail if our strategies of moving aren't up to snuff. So it's just a matter of when. You know, some people might get injured and tear their ACL at 13, 14, 15. Some people might not ever tear their ACL, but they'll get hip problems or knee problems from that strategy, that same movement problem at 30, 40, you know? And so it's it's just more to me a matter of when. And, you know, I think this comes across in both my strength and conditioning, my physical therapy, and my martial arts practice. You know, in some ways, in the sh in the short term, when people look at how I train people, I look like a real stickler. I'm like technique heavy, like, oh, do this perfect. We're going to drill this in over and over and over. So they say, oh, you just love Muay Thai. You're so stuck in your ways. But I go, look at my fighters. They've ranged from world champion Taekwondo fighters like in James Montasri to a pure Muay Thai fighter in Jake Paz, to 
all-around athlete like Khalil Roundtree to Kyokushin fighter and Adele, like Altamimi, to like the enigma that is Anderson Silva. So if I'm such a stickler, I would not be able to work with all these athletes and work with them where they, to meet them where where they're at. Um, and it's the same thing with with the human movement. It's I might be a stickler for the short term in a certain technique, but that's because that's what they need to learn in the skill building at that point. And then if they learn that skill, we might be able to move on and learn something completely different. The problem that most people get is that they never have a consistent long-term plan. And so they're always stuck doing the same shit over and over and over. And it gets boring. You're not going to do it with the same focus. But it's, it's like running around in like a rat cage. Like it's it's pointless. And that's 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 probably my big mission is how to distribute this information um, at scale, you know, in whatever mediums that people will best receive it. Because, you know, some people need to hear about it in story form. Some people need to just see exercise in a correct, uh, intelligent uh, periodization. You know, some people need PSAs, whatever way we need to get them to where they need to be. That's my interest is human performance. You said earlier you like working with people for the long term and seeing where they end up, what their max output is as an athlete. So what if a young athlete comes to you and uh, they don't care what hat you're wearing? They're just like, help me be the best fighter ever, whether it's Muay Thai or MMA, whatever their thing is, then what is your process? What is the first thing you do? Like, do you evaluate them? Do you assess them? Do you just talk to them? My first step would probably be to see where they're at now. That means how are they moving in their sports? Uh, what is their support system? Who are they training with? Uh, what financial, what emotional, what skill building support they have around them um, and what their overall plan for the future is and then to develop them. I think in MMA, there's so many ways to get there. There's no one way that anyone got there, especially at the top. And I think, you know, in some ways people make this hypothesis that it's going to become more of the same. Like, Everyone's going to do boxing, Muay Thai, wrestling, jujitsu. I think people are looking for some kind of template. But the problem with that is, are they going to be a jack of all trades? What happens to jack of all trade fighters? They don't achieve anything. All the top fighters and champions are people who are so good at one or two things and are well-rounded in the others. Or so good, like Damian Maya, where like <laughs> that one skill set is like covers the rest um and i think what you're gonna see because of the way marketing like you know mma is still in its infancy you think that there was money incentive before and publicity it's on espn now like there's going to be a lot more driving towards the sport in the next 10 years um so you're going to see people develop in all different ways and part of that is going to be a revitalization of traditional martial arts too because if you have an olympic medal or world championship that's an accolade that you can bring to marketing yourself right and a whole audience that you can bring so i think you're going to see a lot more people going to jiu-jitsu world championships judo gold medalists 
taekwondo, like whatever way that they can create a specialty for themselves, but they're going to develop themselves into other sports for the long haul. So I think one of the big problems it could be is people who try to master everything at once. Because that means that you're just not going to be that good unless you're just a phenom. Some people can do it. George St. Pierre, I'm sure, is one of those people because he started wrestling, what, at early 20s and was Olympic level. Like even even if that Olympic team, I'm not sure, is is the strongest in that sport, like that's still pretty amazing. But I don't know if that's a talent. Uh but I think you're going to see more diversity in the way people train. But I think one thing that should be important is that overall development of skill sets. So, you know, one thing that I, I hear quite often from my field of as a physical therapist when we get injuries in youth athletes is the idea that if you specialize in a sport early, you're going to be at more prone to an ACL tear or UCL tear or some overuse injury. You know, I, I kind of disagree with that because I think that idea, if you really break down that story of how they're looking at it is they're saying that if you play baseball and you play basketball and you do track and field and you swim, your body will round itself out and be strong in the weaknesses that each sport presents. But I still see injuries all the time. So I... I kind of agree with what they're saying, but I think it's 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 still a risky approach. You're hoping the human body will just pick up the lessons. I don't know what they're thinking of the different movement patterns and say, "Oh, you're you're now well-rounded and resilient." I really look at physical therapy and uh, strength and conditioning to come in at the forefront and say, "You have to fulfill all the things that." the athlete needs to do to get stronger at their sport, but also fulfill all the imbalances and the movement patterns that they don't know how to do in real life and are doing poorly in the strength and conditioning program. So if I'm understanding you correctly, before people were assuming you do all these different sports, they will fill in the gaps. And you're saying they might get good at all those sports, but it might not fill in the gaps. And this is where strength and conditioning comes in. Should come in. That's where it fills in the gaps. Yeah. So kind of a, another philosophy that I bring to my strength and conditioning is I have to look at what that sport is good at training and say, what are the athletes not experiencing in that sport that I can improve in the weight room? So if we take Muay Thai, for example, everyone will agree it's a very explosive sport. Of course, it's anaerobic and aerobic. It has to be aerobic. It's five to three minute rounds, right? You can't be anaerobic that whole time. It's impossible. So I said, like, yeah, we still use like pure aerobic training time to time, but in in the strength aspect, I want to create max strength and max explosiveness. And really, it's developing the skill of developing max strength and max explosiveness. What my goal is not. Oh, I'm searching for the heaviest squat possible. I'm not going for more numbers on the squat uh, every time. That's the misleading thing. It's I want to know if they can express max strength efficiently and effectively and then take that experience back to their sport, whether that's through hypertrophy 
or nervous system recruitment back to their sport. Because in their sport, they're never going to hit 100% like a squat, right? Because the muscles work differently in Muay Thai. But they can take that concept, oh, I know how to turn on my muscles so I can generate more power faster or, or more strength at this time. I can recruit that when I want to and then translate that into their sport. Explosiveness through plyometrics or uh, quick weight work is the same. You want to develop the skill of faster rate of force development. But if they're just jumping all the time, that's not going to translate to the sport. You want to take that skill and then teach them how to use that for their sport. So that's where like coaching from a skill standpoint for a martial arts and strength and conditioning is they have to be kind of merged together. If you're not someone who's merging it together, and you know, I said myself, I don't combine those roles all the time myself, but there needs to be that communication of how to translate that skill over. Um, one issue I see a lot with strength and conditioning is like that, you know, they take that time to not work max strength, not work max force of, uh, max rate of force development. And they just spend that time doing metabolic conditioning. I'm like, they're getting a tons of metabolic conditioning in their sport. Are you saying it's not metabolic conditioning when they're rolling or when they're, you know, sparring, hitting pads? Like that's pretty tiring. It's probably more tiring than a lot of uh strength and conditioning protocols i don't need to do a murph or a like assault bike interval training like that will do the same thing that i'm doing in the sport i want to train the other aspects and that goes to your question of how you can extend out the life of the athlete it's not just keep training redundancy into the into the athlete's life because ideally you want to do the minimal dosage necessary to get the output you want. And what we're doing is usually much more volume and output. What about some of these, uh, I guess, newer strength coaches? Not newer as in they haven't been around in social media, but newer as in they're getting bigger platforms in social media and their ideas are spreading where they're telling people, you shouldn't ever lift weights. You shouldn't ever do strength training. You know what I'm talking about? This has gotten popular, right? We should just do movement stuff instead. And Sure, sure. I think that again will just it's just tooting to your own perspective's bias. Because so if you just take bodyweight exercise, maybe for certain athletes, they just need to know how to move their body in space better. That alone will create more efficiency and then they'll be better at their sport. Right? Like if you can create them to whether it's through flexibility or just understanding how to move like say like a sit through right like you're on all fours and you know how to kick your leg out like in jujitsu if you don't even understand that skill you're gonna work so much harder to do something to the same goal to get around there so if you can create efficiency in that system that's great um if that's what the athlete's lacking Maybe they're just not strong enough and powerful enough to explode into that position. They know how to get there. They just know how to explode. Then I don't know if that's the right recipe for them. So again, I look at all of them as tools. They're all strategies and tools to get the best output. And I don't want to tie myself to any strategy or tool. 
going back to something you said earlier about the future of MMA, because it's going to explode now that it's on ESPN, but also you were saying how there's no one boilerplate path to the reaching the top of the pinnacle. Everybody got there a different way. And now we are seeing athletes from all these different sports coming over to MMA, and we're going to see more of that. With taking all that into consideration, then as somebody who trains the martial arts skills, like let's say you're holding pads for somebody or just training them in striking, what approach do you take? Do you take more of the traditional style like in uh, traditional martial arts or even actually like in Thailand where instead of let's say now I'm just speaking broad strokes, I'm sure each different gym and family will have different ways. But in general, it seems more of the traditional martial arts style where they're going to teach you how to punch. They're going to teach you how to kick and they're going to have you drill these things over and over. Whereas broadly, the Dutch style or the MMA American style is take all the guesswork out of you. Eliminate your creativity as a fighter. I'm not going to just teach you how to punch and kick. I'm going to teach you every combination and I'm going to do the FAQ so you never have to think for yourself. You do this combination, you do that combination. I'm going to have you memorize every different setup and whatever instead of focusing on individual things for you to put together as an individual creative martial artist or athlete, right? I guess my question for you is then if everybody is unique and coming at it from a different way, then because right now it is about teaching them everything and not having to them to do guesswork, are we going to see people going back to the old traditional style where we're teaching them the basics, all the individual techniques and allowing them to flourish and put it together in their own creative way? Because I recently heard an interview with Cleo Roundtree and he was talking about that. He went back to Thailand. He said he felt so much more free because it was just like, I'm just learning how to kick and I'm just drilling that punch, 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 knee, knee, knee. And now it's up to me. How am I going to put all that stuff together? And in one camp, you could have everybody coming up the same system, learning the same kicks, but 50 different styles. You see this in jujitsu a lot right now where the old school jujitsu schools, they just did that, taught you armbar, taught you a pass. And then their top 10 black belts all had a different style. Versus the John Danaher style or a lot of the modern jujitsu schools, everybody looks the same. They actually get better faster in this way because they took all the guesswork out. Now, each person adds a little bit of nuance, but bulk of it was created by Danaher and a lot of these other schools. Like, this is our school style. I'm a, I'm a super white belt. Like, I've been a white belt for <laughs> 12 years. I had like two other good instructors but only for short periods of time like i learned from wilson hayes was my first one and then chris howder for a little bit you know amazing jiu-jitsu people and now i'm finally like devoting myself to actually learn jiu-jitsu with nino shembri um but still a super white belt but it's interesting when i see it as a system because you know even though i'm not deep into it like as a, a black belt or a brown belt it allows me the perspective of like I'm not caring about the techniques. I'm more caring about the way of learning and the systems, like you said. Um, I think the danger when you create such a textbook way is that you're going to learn it faster, but you have to know when to allow them to pivot. And they're maybe having to, um, and that's where they're finding it out at the end, you know, and, 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 you know, with what Khalil said is that's fitting for where he is right now in his development, right? He knows how to punch and kick, and, and that's where he needs to focus the most on. You know, 
in the two fight camps I had with him recently, like that's also what I focus on, like what he does really well because of the shortened time that we have to work with him because there's not time to work on all these other things. And when he went to Thailand, it's like, that's great because now you can spend three to four months not worrying about a fight yet, just training, not just training for a fight specifically, but training and embracing yourself. And, you know, even though he's being taught one thing verbatim, the culture and the surrounding environment of all the other fighters knowing how to train a certain way is creating a system for him. It may not be like what's verbally spoken, but it is creating a certain way. Like all Thai camps train a certain way. There's a certain structure to training in Thailand. Like you get up at five or six, you run a lot, then you come back, you hit the bag, you do pad work or spar like play sparring, and then you clinch at the end for 20 to 30 minutes or sometimes longer depending on the camp. And then you go to, you eat, you shower, you go to sleep, you wake up, and then you do it again, but a harder session of training. It's two, three hour blocks, usually somewhere between 45 minutes to an hour and a half of clinching every day. Um, a lot of bad work, a lot of pad work. There's always this structure. There is a structure to Thailand too. Um, they might not be verbally dictating everything, but everyone knows what the recipe is. So I think having a foundation is always the key. And I think it goes back to the idea of mesocycle, macrocycle. Like as a fighter, if you're developing, you need to develop yourself in macrocycles. You might be developing your jitsu a certain amount, but if, if I want to get a better striker, I got to put more time into that and go all in. Like, you know, like that's your spirit animal. Your spirit animal is striking. Okay. I got to live, breathe like a striker who does some jujitsu to continue to develop and not uh, like regress. And then say, okay, I've gotten to a certain point where I feel good. Maybe I want to focus on something else. I want to focus on how to throw. Maybe I do judo. I do Greco-Roman. And then they focus on that game. Uh, and that's hopefully what how you're developing over the years to prepare yourself once you get to fight uh, fight time. Um, because once you're a professional fighter, it's hard to take these long macro cycles. So that's what you want to do when you're in development. You know, one thing that they say that you see in Thailand, like, you know, everyone looks at Bangkok as the best place to train because that's where all the top fighters are. The top gyms are, it's changing a little bit now because the promotions are, are moving around and the two top stadiums are not the main ones all the time. They're still high level, but they're not the only game in town. But when you see all those fighters, they've they've already been developed by the time they got there. Most people start in the countryside and all over parts of Thailand. And then they, you know, they start in these small gyms and then they fight a few fights out there. And then someone sees them and goes, I want to invest in that. And then they go to a bigger gym in the countryside. And then Someone else sees them and like, that has promise. I want to invest in him as a fighter. And then they buy their contract out and they go to a bigger gym. And then finally they get to Bangkok. When they get to Bangkok, they're fully developed. So sometimes when you look at the trainers there, their skill set is not about teaching you how to learn these techniques. Because they never have to teach anyone. So when foreigners go out there and sometimes they go, I'm going to go to Bangkok. I go, 
that might be great if you already know all those skills or if your goal is to just see the intensity and learn from like learn surfing by going out into the ocean and just trying to surf but probably failing a lot but if you want someone to teach you that's probably not the best gym setting for you you might want to go one step removed where they are used to developing fighters you know developing so that they can go to bangkok because there the coaches might be better at explaining cueing how to learn how to kick how to catch how to develop all these skills um and so i think it's a it's the it's the you know so to question of like how to develop i think it's knowing what your foundation is and knowing how to develop all your other skills in the meantime but you can only do one to two things at a time and you said this earlier about maybe it's not a good idea to try to train everything at once and be a jack of all trades if you're trying to be an mma fighter instead of just joining the mma school or gym and just training like from day one like a fight camp even if you don't have any fights coming up maybe going to learn muay thai for the sake of learning muay thai and then maybe after you got good at that then going to learn brazilian jiu-jitsu or maybe you could do two at a time but going straight from the beginning to go train with the pros at an mma gym isn't the best way to develop as an mma fighter even though that is what you ultimately want yeah and and you know you know maybe you're in a situation in an mma gym that's so amazing that they have really good um coaches in all four disciplines it's not like oh just a striking coach like there's a muay thai coach a boxing coach you know who understands those those sports by themselves and for mma but even when you're in the environment it's probably best to select what you want to focus on like even in that micro world of a gym compared to the, the macro world you still want to develop like what skill sets do i want to develop right now because you try to develop all it's going to be messy is it because your brain and your nervous system can only handle so much information at once i think so and i think there's a lot of uh like I, I'm big on like the idea of like uh, mental and emotional connection. It, it leads to empathy. I think you really need to live, breathe, and think like that kind of athlete. And if you're always switching, it's schizophrenic. Like you can't really put yourself into that soul. But I tell people like if you put all this time into being a, a Muay Thai fighter. When you want to start training other disciplines, even something as as so different as like jujitsu, as far away as you can probably get, you're going to see lessons that you remember. You're not going to just dump all this stuff. That experience is going to come with you. It's going to change how you view the world. If you never develop that viewpoint, you're never going to see the similarities and connect the dots faster. You're just going to be like, oh, this thing taught me this. This style taught me that. That taught me this. And you see in the fitness world too, like I don't understand why there's still this argument of like, oh, plyometrics is better than Olympic weightlifting. Barbell strength training is, is shittier than kettlebell training. Body weight training is the best. Like, they're all just tools. But it is important to go into each one and go, I want to know what the people who develop kettlebells What's their perspective? What's their philosophy? How do they train this, live, breathe? I'm doing that as a strength coach now. Like I'm training with Dr. Mark Chang, 
about kettlebells, like really not just using kettlebells as a different tool than a, a barbell, but going, what is it that Pavel talks about that the principles that they live by? How do they approach getting stronger? What do they think is faster, stronger, more endurance? I want to take that for maybe a year or two years to really develop that because I have this other background. But if I don't do that, I'm just picking at different things and you and it's there's no foundation. You need time to put your heart and soul into something. Yeah. And you really have to like you have to transform yourself into that person. But not be afraid that when you do that, you're giving up everything else. Like it's it's not going to go away. Like we have some great Muay Thai fighters that have transitioned into MMA at Black House. Um like Shema Moraes is one who's in the UFC. Like I saw him nine years ago when he fought Lertzilla in the United States. People are like, oh, like, well, he forgot his like Muay Thai because he's been doing World Series of Fighting and in the UFC. But when I was working around with him, I like I felt it right away. I was like, he remembers everything. It just needs to be sharpened. Like you don't forget those experiences like, because if you really like, and, and when I say that is if you really devote yourself to develop yourself to be that kind of animal, you can't forget it. It just, it's there always. But if you never develop like that as a true being, it's just, you're learning, you're dabbling the skill you're dabbling. Then of course it's lost. Like a jujitsu person who's been training for uh, to a black belt. When they're learning wrestling, they're never going to forget all those those things that they come into with, even the perspective of jujitsu, right? Like at its purity, like I'm 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 starting to really get interested into this, where the perspective of jujitsu at its core for Brazilian jujitsu is survival. That I heard this from from several of the the Gracie family where they said winning is not beating your opponent, winning is surviving, and then finding a way to beat your opponent. That's so interesting. That's definitely not how a Muay Thai fighter would think. That's definitely not how a wrestler would think. A wrestler is like, it's going to smash from the very beginning. But it's so interesting that Jujitsu has this perspective like, the first step to winning is surviving, not getting submitted, and then finding a way out of that submission to a more dominant position, and then submitting your opponent. Whereas wrestling is like, it's like you're going to go for the dominant position right away. So I think that's why it's it's so important to really develop yourself on that deeper level. And where can people find you? Um, the easiest way to find me is on Instagram at Dr. Jason Park, Dr. Jason Park, um, J S O N P A R K. Uh, our website is coolheartperformance.com. Uh, cool heart is a phrase that comes from uh, Thai, the Thai language, Jayen, which means Jai is heart, yen is cool, and so you often hear people say Jai Yen Yen. Um, it's also the name of my Muay Thai camp when I was in Philadelphia from Crew Rigel Balsamico, where we saw fighters like Wilson Hayes, Justin Greskowitz come from, and it's something that always stuck with me when I heard about that philosophy of a cool heart. It means that when you're very angry, very sad, very happy excited that you calm yourself to a level so that you still have rational thought 
Um, and that's something I think that comes often with strength training, also comes in with physical therapy when we go through the hardest points of 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 life, whether it's the end of a hard week of training, you just need to recover so that you, you're ready for the next week of training, or it's coming back from a very disastrous ex- like injury, like an ACL injury, um, or in fighting, where even if you knock someone down, you see fighters get so excited, I'm like, calm down, breathe, look for the right choice of what to do in that moment. So coreperformance.com is our website. And you're going to see quite a bit of information coming out for strength and conditioning for all athletes, for humans, but especially for fighters, as well as prehab and rehab exercises. So that way people have a good program. And I think that's the big thing is we want to put out information that's not just a library of exercises, but an actual program so that it's, it actually works in your day. There's a the system for it. All right. I'll put all that in the show notes. Otherwise... Thank you, Jason, for coming in today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me.